Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Anyway, welcome to New Spring. All right. Off to a great start. <laughs> if you're visiting, my name is Dave, and um, great to have you along. We are in um, the school holidays. We are enjoying having our kids home. We've got another week. Are there any kids that got two weeks left? Yeah? All right. Because so, some schools have three weeks, which is absolutely incredible. Um, our kids only get two. Beautiful. Well, we're going to continue into our series where we're talking about um, New Spring Church, in particular talking about our purpose statement. And the title of today's um, sermon is just simply family. I just want to talk a little bit about family um, today. And um, we're going to have to improvise a little bit. I did have some things, uh, as I said, which were going to involve, uh, well, engage the kids a bit better, but um, we'll have that sorted for next week. Um, Here's a big question. How did Christianity change the world? Because Christianity actually literally changed the world. And the question is, well, how exactly did it, that happen? Because we have in our mind, oh, this is how it happened. And we go about trying to change the world the way that we do it, not necessarily knowing how initially Christianity actually changed the world. And it wasn't just like a, a nice little Western, clean like world of what we have right now. We're talking about the Roman Empire. Does anyone know anything about the Roman Empire? Man, that was an incredible time of history. It was an overbearing, ruthless, violent, dominating empire, the Roman Empire. Um, one of the most in, um, dominant, intimidating empires the world has ever seen. Yet, in the midst of this kind of world, this kind of empire, Christianity, historians will say, it is Christians that gave the world its humanity. How did they actually do that? It's a really, really intriguing question. What was their genius? And the question I kind of have today is, like, if Christianity changed the world 2,000 years ago in one of the most ruthless empires that the world has ever known, does it still have the power to change the world today? That's the question, isn't it? That's a really, really big question. Something that was really core to um, the early church, something which we kind of lose in a Western secular world, something that was so core was this idea of family idea of family. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was having lunch with a Christian leader, and um, we were talking about stuff. They were doing more talking than me, which is hard to believe, right? If you know me, they were doing more talking than me. And um, we were talking about the New Testament, the family idea, and, and this person said, Dave, you cannot mention family in Australia, because families are so broken. Families are so, um, like, sort of like messed up and all that. As soon as you say family, it just, it's going to work against you. And here's the thing, right? In the Roman Empire, what do you think the concept of family was? There was, no, there was no concept of friendship, no concept of family, no concept of, of love. But in the midst of a world which had very little idea or understanding of what a true family, true brotherly and sisterly love would look like, these bunch of random Jesus followers who met around in different cities of gatherings, probably of around 20 people, right? A mega church in the early church would have been 50 people. That's a mega church. <laughs> right? But they demonstrated and they embodied such a different way of living that people looked on and they said, you know what? I'm intrigued. I'm interested. They came into that and then they started living that way. And that is how the world 
changed. It actually changed with this idea of family. That is how the early church literally changed the world. And that doesn't really excite us. Is anyone excited about that? No, we want to have our big rallies, don't we? We want to have our big conferences. Yet the early church, they gathered and they embodied a different way of living in little groups, embodying family, and that literally changed the world. Seems interesting to me that in 2022, we live in this world and the family seems to be under constant attack, doesn't it? Constant attack. Have you found it difficult to actually be part of, I mean, think about your family. Have you found it difficult to be part of your family? There's like, has it been like just easy going? I mean, I think about the Ryder family. The Ryder family's all messed up. <laughs> We've had all sorts of stuff come against us because there is a constant opposition to actually forming and embodying a healthy family. It's something, and, and you know what? As Christians, that should probably intrigue us. That should probably intrigue us. Say, wait a minute. Why is it that the family unit, this idea of family, seems to come under constant attack over and over and over again? Maybe there's a reason for that. This always comes under constant attack. There are different kinds of families. I've got like one kind of family up here. If you could put out that first slide, um, Olivia. Um, some families kind of look a bit like this, the Incredibles. Do you, do you know a family, if you looked upon them and you say, you know what, they're just incredible. Like from the outside, they look like they've got it all together, right? Do you know any families like that? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, they're just the perfect family. They've got like superpowers. They work together as a team. But if you watch the movie, you see behind the scenes, you see behind closed doors, they're as, they're as stuffed up as everyone else, aren't they? They're as messed up. They're still trying to work out this thing called life behind closed doors. So you may have some families that kind of look pretty incredible. You take a closer look, or if you ask them honestly and say, you know what, we struggle with the same things as everyone else. I don't know if there's any such thing as an incredible family. The Incredibles look great on a movie slide, um, but maybe not necessarily um, the reality in person. There is another kind of family. I, I thought we might show this, and again, there's no sound, but you can watch the clip and you can kind of see where um, this family kind of derives from. And um, Is everyone kind of familiar with this kind of family? I think this is a pretty cool family. You've got this guy called Gru. Um, everyone familiar with Gru? Actually, let me ask a question. Who hasn't watched Despicable Me? Shame. Shame on you. Shame on you. Um, this, this particular scene, I think, is, is amazing. This, um, and obviously it's not there. Let me explain. This whole um, first um, movie of Despicable Me starts with this villain, someone who's trying to be a villain guru. And he's got this, um, this family of minions and all that, but three little girls kind of come into his life. And he initially wants to use these girls in order to um, complete one of his kind of um, evil missions. What happens is that these girls come into his life and this guy who's supposedly this villain, his heart changes to a point where in this particular scene, he is actually reading them a storybook which he actually um, wrote himself, and it's beautiful. I can't do Steve Carell's voice. <laughs> but I think what's so beautiful, this is, this is like one of the most gospel pictures of family I have actually seen on the big screen. you got this guy, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, three little girls come in, and all of a sudden, this rather odd-looking guy has a family. That last scene um, at the end, um, he hugs his little daughter, and he actually says the words, I love you. 
And what's really cool, after that, he walks outside of the door, which is kind of, oh, you'll see this now. He walks out of the door to actually be, see, that's just like a little kiss. See, this is, a, this is a gospel moment here. That. That's a gospel moment. And then this. That's a gospel moment too. Anyway, we, we did a clip without, without sound. Thanks so much, Olivia. But if you can't even look at that. If you looked at that scene, would you say that that scene is a typical family scene? It's not. Well, I haven't seen little families with little minions running around. But in this story, not only is Gru part of the family of these three girls, but also of these like hundreds of minions as well. That's a real gospel picture because somehow you get all these people who don't fit together. It doesn't look like the ideal thing, but God actually moves and God actually shapes and creates family out of people and out of situations where it looks like there is no way that should be family. And that's, I mean, that's why I just think we, we I've done a couple of um, messages out of Despicable Me, but we could actually do that again. But that's actually a gospel, gospel moment. The definition of family is so, so vast. Um, there are blended families. Anyone part of a blended family here? Yep, they're blended families. You know, praise God for that. Interracial families. Anyone in an interracial family? I sometimes, I sometimes, honestly, I sometimes forget, but I married a white woman. You know, I sometimes forget that. <laughs> um, the nuclear family. Everyone, like, everyone knows of the nuclear family. The nuclear family is becoming more and more uncommon, though, isn't it? Yeah? There are families that have step-parents. There are families that have foster parents. You know, you've got Mitch and Eva there. They're foster parents, you know. Does that make their family any less than any other family? Not a chance. It's still family, right? Still family. Um, there, are, there are extended families where grandparents come in, and there are all kinds of different families. And whatever family you are part of right here, right now, we just need to know, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that God's plan is for family. It really is. And we should be those who fight for family. In August, we're actually going to go through another series. Um, if, Olivia, if you could put that slide up. And August is a couple of, of, um, just a couple of weeks away. But I want to do a series which is called F is for Family. And what I'm wanting to do, we've been going through um, just... Um, this idea of being Act 5 people, okay? Improvising the story of God in Act 5 people. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to the last couple of weeks. But I actually want to actually start putting um, uh, some, some real action into this. What does it mean to be an Act 5 person, follower of Jesus Christ, within the context of family? Because it's all well and good for me to give you the theology and give you the theory of how this all fits together. And a lot of people have, have come to me and said, Dave, thank you so much. I'm joining the dots. I know this story. I know this truth. And you're bringing it together. So we're joining the dots. But what does it mean to actually improvise the story of God in a faithful way in the context of family? We want to talk a little bit about that in um, in August. So let's make sure you're here for August. I'm excited about that series. I'll tell you another series I'm really excited about. The series we're going to do in February next year, but you're going to have to wait for that. I'm trying to hold myself not to start that, but I'm looking forward to that. 
Everyone wants to change the world, don't they? Especially if you're a young adult. Everyone wants to change the world. The scripture is pretty clear that, um, and it was also, scripture is actually in agreement with the, the cultural philosophy that was in the Roman Empire at the time of our New Testament. If you want to change the world, change your family. Scripture is pretty clear on that. Everyone wants to do everything out there. But if you want to see change out there, you can change some stuff at home. And the outworking of that will literally change the world. Our purpose statement articulates a vision for families who are improvising the story of God as Act 5 people. One of the sentences in our purpose statement says this, families shine with respect and adoration for each other. Isn't that a great line? Families shine with respect and adoration for each other. Have you ever met a family and like those words, they seem so true. They don't even have to say anything, but you just see the way they interact with each other. You see the way they speak to each other. You can even see them in times where, you know what, they, they, they may not have done things as, as best as they should. But even in that, you kind of look and say, you know what, this family, they shine with respect and adoration for each other. That is something that we would love the New Spring family to embody more and more so. It's not a destination you arrive at like instantaneously. It's something that we work towards. Families shine with respect and adoration for each other. So today I want to give a couple of thoughts around marriage. But really these thoughts can actually apply to other relationships as well. Especially if you are um, like some of our um, people getting prepared to get married or even like Danny and Jade Lee, mate, you're still in the first year, aren't you? How's that first year of marriage going for you? Loving it? Much better than like just being single. Yeah? Yeah. Family's pretty good. A couple of years ago, I was reading this um, article and um, it was um, an article based on research by John Gottman. And you can actually um, go and Google um, his research. John Gottman, uh, if you Google John Gottman, the four horsemen. And um, in this um, article... John Gottman was actually articulating that he has the ability, he says he has the ability to listen to a couple speak to each other, to engage with each other for five minutes. And in five minutes, he says with 91% accuracy, he can determine whether that couple will divorce or not. In five minutes. Imagine if you had that superpower. In five minutes, I can tell if you're going to make it or not. And from that, he actually has um, what he calls the four horsemen, the four horsemen. And um, it sounds pretty, um, like, I don't know, like the, the four horsemen, it's kind of like, what? Oh. The idea is that if you actually um, engage in these four horsemen, your marriage will head towards an apocalypse. That's kind of the idea. So if you want to have a good marriage, like know what these things are and actually do the opposite, all right? This is what the four horsemen are. Four things that will kill your marriage, actually will kill any relationship. The first one is criticism. Criticism. Complaints are fine, but criticism is actually a different thing. Because criticism attacks the person, not the behavior of your spouse. They're actually very, very different. Um, it could be an example of, you know what, this, like my husband or my wife, they, they didn't take the garbage out. Um, not, not because they forgot, but because they're actually a bad person. So that's the first one, criticism. Second one, contempt. Contempt's huge. Contempt's huge. I don't know about you, but if I ever had um, a, a, a moment where Andrew kind of like eye-rolled or sneered or mocked me 
That would cut me like nothing else. But contempt is that. It's name-calling, it's eye-rolling, it's sneering, it's mockery, it's hostile humour. As Australians, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because part of our culture is actually to be quite hostile with our humour, isn't it? Yeah? But that actually has outworkings which are not going to be beneficial uh, for a healthy marriage or any um, healthful um, relationship as well. This is actually the worst of the four horsemen. It's poisonous in relationships because it conveys disgust. It's virtually impossible to resolve a problem when your partner is getting the message that you are disgusted by them. That makes sense, doesn't it? You're trying to, trying to resolve an issue, you're trying to move forward, and, and in the meantime, you're communicating that you, you just disgust them. You, you hold them in that kind of regard. That's going to be a very, very impossible um, situation to actually walk through. The good news is that you can easily pick yourself up on that, can't you? But contempt's actually a really big one, a really, really big one. And, and these things actually do creep into marriages, by the way. There are no incredible families Behind closed doors, all of us are actually outworking all this stuff. All of us are trying to figure out what it means to actually live together, to work together, to be in community together, to be family together. We're trying to outwork this. Um, the third one's defensiveness. Defensiveness. A way of blaming your partner. You're saying, the problem isn't me, the problem is you. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where defensiveness actually helps a situation. Anyone? We all know it doesn't help, does it? It doesn't help it at all. Not at all. Um, and that's why it's so deadly. The fourth one of these four horsemen, this is a really encouraging sermon so far, by the way, isn't it? <laughs> Fantastic. The fourth of this is stonewalling. Stonewalling. Tuning out, disengaging. You're in a conversation, but you actually just, you tap out and you're actually not engaged. You're not involved. You're not participating in that moment. Stonewalling. Um, I think all of us have experienced that in the world, but you know what, when you start experiencing that in your family, you start experiencing that in your marriage, that is definitely one of these four horsemen. What it does is that um, it removes the person from the conflict, it ends up removing them emotionally from the relationship. So you may not know it, you, you go into this mode where you've tuned out, you've disengaged, and emotionally, emotionally you've actually disappeared from that relationship. For better or for worse, till death do us part. Well, you know what? You may be there physically, but emotionally you've left the building. So these are four horsemen. These are four things guaranteed. If you want to go home today, if you want a guaranteed way of killing your marriage, let me tell you four ways where it can be guaranteed. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Guaranteed it's going to happen. And um, the research, John got me. I mean, you look at those and say, well, I don't know why you do so much research. It seems pretty obvious. So if you want to read a little bit further, um, like I said, just John Gottman, Four Horsemen, it's quite, um, um, well, it's just everywhere. So in light of that, let's think again of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. When, we call, when we've been talking about and actually trying to flesh out act number two in the story of God, which we call the fall. And remember, when we're talking about the fall, we've said the fall is not just uh, you know, Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit, Genesis 3. It goes beyond that. It's more complicated than that. The problem with the church and the problem with Christians, per se, is that we see that the, pro that the fall is only about Genesis 3. 
And the solution of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension only deals with Genesis 3. So we just like kind of think, you know what? My sins are forgiven. I'm back in sacred space. It's okay. I'm all good. I can carry on with life. And we don't understand that the fall is actually more complex. And what Jesus accomplished on the cross actually deals with and resolves more than just Genesis 3. So Genesis 3, there's a rebellion on earth. Humanity is sent from the presence of God. They're sent into exile. Genesis 6, we said there's a rebellion in the heavens. You've got this odd little thing where you've got these Elohim, these fallen angels, or whatever you want to call them, fallen heavenly beings. They look at women on the earth and they go, mm, mm, mm. and you know the rest is history. And they crossed the line. They took what they shouldn't take. Genesis 11, we unpacked last week. And we said this was the final straw. And this actually led to this curse which was placed on humanity there was a fracture there was a moment where there was a fracture in humanity and Genesis 11 which is a tower of Babel actually gives us the story where God is communicating to his people this is the moment where it happened and it wasn't just a scattering or confusion that happened among humanity there was also a scattering among the heavenlies where God actually scattered people around the earth and Israel would become Yahweh's special possession, but other nations would have other Elohim or other gods or other um, fallen heavenly beings who would exert their dehumanizing influence upon them. This has become very, very complex. And what we said is that because of this, there's a curse, there's confusion. Think about these four horsemen I just talked about in light of this curse. Confusion. There's confusion with language in that people cannot understand each other. Cannot understand each other. Have you ever sat and had a conversation with your husband or with your wife and you think, I understand the words that are coming out of your mouth, but I cannot understand you. You are otherly to me. No? Have you had a conversation with your husband or wife lately? (laughs) Have you not realized that we come from different perspectives? This otherness of of, of who we are coming together actually points to the Trinity of God, this communal God, this this God who loves, this this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who who are the same, yet otherly together. Yet we come together as husband and wife, and we're not like each other. You haven't discovered that, right? We have different desires, different wants. You know, <laughs> well, fellas, we tend to have just a couple of wants anyway, but we've got children here. We'll do that series later on when kids' church is back on. There's misunderstandings, there's hostility, there's war, there's the creation of enemies. Um, there's the ignorance of other people's perspectives because of this confusion. And we see that happening today. There's a scattering which happens because of Genesis 11. What's the implications of scattering? Isolation. There's an epidemic in the world today. People are isolated. People are lonely. Do you know people are really lonely? Like if people are lonely, you'd think the antidote would be really simple, wouldn't you? Except that people are so different to each other and a lot of times just don't get on with each other, you know? There are principalities and powers that are in place that are exerting dehumanizing influences upon humanity. They are pushing, they are provoking, they are um, encouraging these things like confusion, like hostility, like war, like isolation, like the creation of enemies. So not only is there a fracture with humanity, there are principalities and powers that are also adding to this, right? Think about those four horsemen in the context of that curse. Makes complete sense, doesn't it? Makes complete sense. So in light of gaining greater understanding as to what happened with the fall, act number two, 
we have to consider how we are to live today. Consider um, this verse in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 10 to 13. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Let's just stop there for a moment. Put on the full armor of God. I grew up thinking that this putting on the full armor of God means that me, Dave Ryder, needs to put on the full armor of God. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying to the church collectively, he's saying, y'all together put on the full armor of God. That this is a communal activity. That the only way you and I are going to put on the full armor of God is if we do it together. You can't do it by yourself. And I know that flies in the face of individualism, that flies in the face of a lot of things that we've learned, but that is precisely what Paul's saying. Verse 12, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, um, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Understand throughout the New Testament, and um, you, you will not read far before you start seeing that there are different powers in play. There are unseen powers, there are principalities, there are rules. There's different names that Paul and the other New Testament writers and even Jesus will actually give them. But basically what they're pointing to is what happened at Genesis 11 when there was a scattering of principalities and powers. And Paul is letting us know that in our relationships, in our life, as a church, and even in your marriage, that you may be looking at your husband, looking at your wife and saying, you know what, that fella, he just, like, he just gets on my nerves. But the reality is you're not fighting your husband. You're not fighting your wife. There are other influences in play here. Does that make sense? And the problem is we can't see them. It's so much easier to attack someone I can see. Isn't it? Seriously. It's easier to attack flesh and blood, isn't it? And let me ask you this, like, honestly. Like, this is just me, all right? I don't know if you're anything like me. Isn't it more satisfying? Isn't it? For Imogen, it is. All the rest of you are just too holy. <laughs> we'll pray for Hobie. No. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's so much more satisfying. So much more satisfying. But here's the question when it comes to our marriages, when it comes to our families, indeed, when it comes to our life. Am I, because we love all spiritual warfare and all that, have no idea what it means. Honestly, no idea what it means. Here's the question. Am I fighting against the principalities and powers of this present age or am I complicit with their agenda? Because I can, I can join with you. I'll tongue talk with you. I'll pray and I'll stomp and all that. And there is that, that, that reality that we do need to, 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 to pray in the spirit and all that. But please, please, please understand that, that you, you, your, your spiritual warfare is going to be more potent when you resist the evil powers by actually staying in love, staying committed, staying faithful, serving each other, submitting to one another, coming together as a family of God. Because this is what happens, I said it last week, when we actually embody a faithful church, it means very little to us because it seems so natural and normal. 
But if we were able to actually pull back the, the, the curtain and actually see the, the evil powers, they are absolutely petrified when we gather together as the family, when we come together and we work things out, where we employ the spiritual warfare of hospitality, of welcome, of forgiveness, of grace towards each other, because it reminds them, you have been defeated, you were disarmed, your days are up, judgment is certain for you, but we are living in the victory of Christ. That's true spiritual warfare, and we need to recover that. Otherwise, otherwise, we just start looking like the rest of the world. And how did the early church change the world? They embodied a completely different way of being human. Look at the church. If we're just going to be acting out and like being like the rest of the church, the rest of the world, the world looks at the church and says, you're the same as us. That's not going to change anything. It's not going to change anything. Do I war against these dehumanizing influences that are cultivating confusion, that are cultivating misunderstandings, that are bringing hostility, that are bringing war, that are creating enemies, that are encouraging me to be ignorant of another person's perspective, to scatter instead of bringing together? Am I living a life personally, as a family, as a church, that actually resists that influence, or am I complicit with their agenda? Families shine with respect and adoration for each other. I think the question for us is, do our families shine with respect and adoration for each other, or has our family been tarnished a bit? And the reality is all families get tarnished, okay? The New Testament has some passages which are known as the household codes. And we're going to go through them um, in August. Um, we went through Ephesians. We went through them. We're going to go back and go a little bit deeper into the household codes, particularly in Ephesians and in Colossians. The household codes in the Roman Empire, um, they were very common. Because every culture has standards, values, expectations. Every culture has household codes. Even Perth has household codes. Um, there's a way of being and living that, 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 that society would say, this, this is pretty normal. The paradigm and reference point for religious, moral, as well as social, political, and economic organizational interactions and ideologies for the Roman Empire and the ancient world as well was the household. The underlying social philosophy was this, that the household is like any small city. If the, marriage is, if the marriage flourishes and the children mature and are paired with one another, another household is founded and thus a third and a fourth. And out of these, a village is formed and finally a city is made. And after many villages come to be, a city is produced. So the idea is if you actually want to create a certain type of, of, of city, you actually set some codes in the household. And over time, that household becomes two, three, Four, those four become a village. And after time, village becomes other villages, becomes a city. So in other words, if you actually want to influence what happens in the city, you backtrack city to village, to villages, to households, back to the household. That's what, how it works. That's why they're kind of saying, if you want to actually shape a city, you shape the household. If you want to change the world, you change your house. This is what the Roman Empire was actually saying. So there are already existing household codes in the city as Paul brings these household codes um, 
And he fully understands the significance of the family within the context of the cities that he's communicating to. So what Paul does, he takes the gospel, right? He takes the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and he infuses these subversive gospel dynamics into the family unit. What he does is that he takes gospel seed and he plants it into the family unit so that over time, this gospel seed would grow and eventually overtake the Roman Empire. And 2,000 plus years on, we look back and secular historians say it is Christianity that gave the world its humanity. But it started in the house. In the ancient world, the man was everything. Absolutely everything. There are other household codes which we are, uh, have access to. Philo, in, 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 for instance, he writes this, Wives must be servitude to their husbands. A servitude not imposed by violent ill-treatment, or promoting, but promoting obedience in all things. Parents must have power over their children. The same holds for any other person over whom he, that being a man, has authority. So as part of the culture of the Roman Empire, wives, children, slaves had no voice. They had no, no saying in the working of the family unit. So Paul subverts that. You'll notice if you read in the household codes, Paul addresses every single person in the household. Husbands, wives, children, servants, slaves, everyone. We don't get it looking back, but that is so subversive. No other household code addresses every single person in the family, it just addresses the man. It says to the man, you the man, take care of everything. Make sure everyone's servitude to you. But Paul comes, and it's almost like you get this, everyone is together. Everyone is hearing this together. It is so subversive. It is a complete, it is in the face of the current household codes of that particular culture. I grew up with this sentiment, and you might, um, you, you might have as well. When I was growing up, it was said to me, children should be seen and not heard. Anyone else? Do you know how anti-gospel that is? You get Jesus, the disciples are kicking the, the kids out, and he gets angry with them to the point where he calls a little one into the very center, and he says, you want to be great in the kingdom, you become a little one, because the disciples want to be great ones. And he says, no, 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 no. You want to be great in the kingdom? You don't aspire to be a great one. You be like this little one. Paul actually has the children included in the household codes. If you do have that, um, that, that, that kind of mindset when it comes to children, can I encourage you, kick it to the curb. That does not belong in the gospel. And it doesn't belong in New Spring. Let the children be children. If they want to run around, let them run around. I don't know. But you, you, do you understand that? I sense it's hit some people. It's okay. I grew up with that. Um... And I, I remember how, how you kind of feel. It's like, wait a minute. And, and then I grow up and I, I'm reading through, through the Gospels. I'm reading through the New Testament. It's like, wait a minute. That's not what this is actually about. That's not family. That's not a family dynamic. It's difficult if I actually have to be a, a father. And in some way, as a father, I need to submit myself to Kayla and Jackson. And Kayla's like, like 10 turning 11 and Jackson's not like, what does that mean? Whoa, I need to outwork that. How do, I, how do I remain a father and then submit to my children? Like, whoa, 
I need to think about this. Anyway, so we're going we're gonna to pick up a bit of, of that stuff as we go on. What I want to do with just a couple of moments that I have remaining, because we haven't got time to actually go through household codes and all that, we'll save that for August. But what I'd love to do, I want to actually um, bring to your uh, attention that in Ephesians, the household code for followers of Jesus Christ who are planting gospel seeds in their family, it is bracketed by two verses. And I think that as we go from this point, if we actually aspire to live our lives within the brackets, we're going to be doing pretty good. I reckon that if we can actually think deeply about these brackets, that'll actually give us enough thought to say, okay, how am I going to outwork this? How am I going to actually embody the the, the story of God? How am I going to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? How do I live within these two brackets? So, going to read these brackets. The first bracket is found in Ephesians 5 verse 21. This is the first of the brackets. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Have you ever thought about what that means though? Submit to one another. I know later on, Paul says, like, wives submit to your husbands. But I think a lot of us in in church history, we've started off the household codes there instead of starting at where it actually does start. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And even that word Christ, a lot of us, like, we, we, we just read past Christ. What does Christ mean? The Messiah, King. Now, now, now when I say King and Christ, it's the same thing, but... It, it has, a, it has a bit more oomph, doesn't it, the king? Out of reverence to our king, submit to one another. And this goes both ways. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. We need to submit to one another. How are you going to do that? That takes a bit of communication, doesn't it? That's going to take a little bit of working it out. I reckon there's going to be a lot of times where we get it wrong. I think that in our marriage... There'll be times where, honestly, I've got it wrong. Times I've got it right. But we need to continually work that out. What does it mean to actually have that as the first bracket of my life? Submit to one another. What does that mean for a senior pastor? What does that mean for a senior pastor to actually say, wait a minute, I, I, I know I've been given this role by God. I have to steward stuff and, and my job's to provide safety for a congregation. But what does it mean to actually submit? What is that? You have to think that out. You know, I've been in a place where I've tried to submit and people start walking all over you. It's like, wait, that's not what, that's not what God's talking about either. So, so what does that mean to actually submit? What does it mean for kingdom citizens to submit to each other? Husbands to wives, wives to husbands. Because this posture flies in the face of the curse that we've articulated that came out of Genesis 11. It flies in the face of that. Two Jesus followers who come together in a kingdom dynamic, in this kingdom dynamic, in this kingdom posture, they will literally experience heaven. And I'm not talking about those cheap little Christian cliches. You know how we throw them around? You know, it's like just like heaven on earth. It's like, really, is it? Because the, the, the truth is, 
our family, according to Scripture, it could possibly be heaven on earth. It could. But it's going to take some working out. It's going to mean that we're going to, we're going to do okay sometimes, but maybe a lot of times we don't do okay, but we need to learn. We need to, to employ these, these, the things of like forgiveness, of extending grace and mercy towards each other. Two people embodying the kingdom of God is literally heaven, and heaven is the realm where God's authority reigns. So that's the first bracket. The last bracket is this. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Remember that both of you have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So the first one's out of reverence for Christ, our King. And the second one is, you've got to remember this. Both of you have the same master. We have the same King. God has no favorites. Did you know this? It astounds me. It absolutely astounds me. But God loves me as much as he loves you. And God loves you as much as he loves me. He has no favorites. Isn't that good to know? God loves me as much as he loves Jackson. God loves Hobie as much as he loves me. He has no favorites. We can have favorites, but God has no favorites. That's the second bracket, to keep that in mind. Seriously, just think about those two things. Submit to one another out of reverence to our king. And remember, we all have the same master. We all have the same king. God has no favorites. Those two brackets and living within those two brackets, that could change everything. Two verses. Actually, one and a half verse, because that's verse 6.9b, the second part of it. What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus, to outwork the victory of Jesus Christ in our families? What does it mean to work, to work this gospel, to work it out, to work out our salvation so that our families shine with respect and adoration for each other? Well, I think a beginning can be to try to the best of our ability and try together to talk about this, to think about this. How will our family be bracketed by these truths? How will our marriage be bracketed by these truths? Everyone wants to change the world. Good, let them. As for me and my house, we're going to change our home. And the outworking of that, I may not see it in my generation, but the outworking of it, I think of Kayla and Jackson and their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids. The outworking of that, who knows what it's going to be? But that's what's going to change the world. I'm just going to be committed to living out the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the kingship coming under His reign in my family. I'm going to change my family. And the outworking of that, well, that can change the world. Before I end, I want to give a word to the mess. The reason why I love Despicable Me is that that is a family that shouldn't be fitting together. It's a family that obviously, I mean, something happened to that boy group. You know, you look at that boy and say, man, something happened to you. And as you see the story, yeah, something did. God is so committed to the mess. I think if the story of God tells us nothing else, it tells us that God's intent and God's desire is to outwork His kingdom, to work it out through the, fragi the, the, the fragility and the mess of our humanity. Amen? Any messy people here? 
It is God's delight to work in and through our mess. The story of God, act number two, act number three, and act number four and five. They let us know that. So there are many in our church, there are many in this room, and you've been hurt. I remember one connect group that we had years ago, and we were sitting in our lounge, and Andrew and I were the only couple, and it was full. We were the only couple who were on our first marriage. The only. You were there, Ricky, weren't you? Yeah. We were the only ones there. That, that blew my mind. It doesn't blow my mind now. But I, I would have never known, you know, because like a, a lot of these like couples and families, like, man, they're living out the, the victory of God. It's awesome. But there's certainly a lot of people who've been hurt, you've been disappointed. Unmet expectations, betrayals. Some people in our church, you were standing in front of that altar and you said, I do. And you had every intention, every intention to uphold that I do. And things happen, people betray, things are out of your control, and you're unable to stand by that vow. And it's not your fault. And I know there are things in life and we all have to take some responsibility for that. But other things happen in our life which are out of our control. And I just want to say, I am so sorry that has happened to you. I'm so sorry. I want you to know that we will, we will endeavor to walk with you the best that we can. And we are fully, I have the full conviction in my life that God works through mess. He could, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to, but for some reason he seems to take delight in it. And your story right now, there might be a comma in your story, but that's not a full stop. That's not a full stop. So while we're talking about families, while we're talking about marriages, while we're talking about what does it mean to embody, I want everyone in our church to understand and recognize that God works through mess. And we have people in our beautiful church and things have happened. And we're going to walk with you. And you know what? We're also going to celebrate when God's redemptive work really starts to actualize in and through that mess. Because God seems to be very good at working through mess, doesn't He? There are people who are in a messy situation, messy families, and it feels like the principalities and powers are mocking you. Let them mock for now. But deep down, you must know that God has a purpose to use your family and God works through mess. I have no problem with the enemy mocking me because I know the day will come very soon where the tables are turned and I'll be mocking you. Do not be disheartened, even though it is difficult. But we as the family of New Spring Church, let us make sure that we do this together. Is that okay?
Let me just finish by reading our purpose statement once again. We are image bearers of God that reflect His love. We pursue God's heart with our whole life through His word, prayer, and building community. We seek God's heart and we dare to see places of despair as opportunities where God's kingdom breaks in and breaks forth so people discover what it is to be truly human. We declare it is only in relationship with Christ that we can truly know who we are and acknowledge that we are all on different stages of that journey. We work to discover the truth of God's Word, believing it addresses every issue of the human heart. We are united with a desire to serve God. All the generations guide with wisdom. Young and generations will inspire with their strength. Families shine with respect and adoration for each other. Our fellowship lingers outside the walls of church services and builds strong relationships and communities that support and celebrate together. That is simply us trying to articulate what it means to improvise the grand story of God as Zach Five people living in July 2022. And that is who we are, beautiful church. Let me pray for you. and We're going to respond to God's word in worship. Father, I thank you for your love and your kindness towards us. Father, I pray that as we've gone through talking about family and as we will talk about families, that we will acknowledge that we're all on different stages of this journey. Hurt and disappointments and betrayal have come. I ask that you would provide your grace so that there would be strength and there would be hope and there would be faith. For those in the life of our church who feel that there is a full stop, I pray that you would just add to that full stop a little tick and let them know, no, this is just a comma. The story continues. I pray for the birthing of brand new redemptive stories to come out of the mess. I pray for new relationships. I pray for new marriages. I pray for new families. I pray that you would give us the wisdom to walk this gospel out in ways that make the world look upon the church and say, wow, we're intrigued. You guys are demonstrating a different way of being human and that you'll be glorified in all of this, we pray in Jesus' name.